Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. There were a long list of atrocities and crimes committed by Hamas terrorists on October 7th. Murderous massacres, kidnapping, and numerous forms of physical and psychological torture. From early on, evidence also pointed to multiple cases of rape and other forms of gender-based violence. However, the international bodies that were founded to address these unspeakable crimes against women and hold the perpetrators accountable have, until now, remained silent. Joining us on Haaretz Weekly to talk about the situation and what can be done about it is internationally recognized expert and activist, Professor Ruth Halperin-Kadari. Also on the podcast, we'll discuss another concern for Israeli women in wartime, National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir's plan to dramatically expand access to personal weapons, a plan that includes no background check for a history of domestic violence. We'll speak to Lily Ben-Ami, an activist and advocate for abused women, about the dangers that the Ben-Gvir plan presents. All of that coming up. Professor Ruth Halperin-Kadari is the founding director of the Rackman Center for the Advancement of the Status of Women at Bar-Ilan University Law School. She has received the U.S. Secretary of State's International Women of Courage Award for her work on international women's rights. And in 2018, she was ranked as one of the world's 100 most influential people in gender equality policy. Professor Kadari served for 12 years on the U.N. Committee on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. During this time, she also served as the committee's vice chair and chair of a working group. Welcome, Professor Ruth Halperin-Kadari. For the purposes of this interview, shall we go Israeli style, and I'll call you Ruth? That's fine. Let's start with what is the most difficult topic regarding women in regards to this war. It was clear from the outset that among the atrocities committed by Hamas terrorists on October 7th was rape and abuse of women, gender-based violence, That's together with the terrible slaughter, massacre, and kidnappings that occurred. Evidence has emerged that this was a deliberate form of psychological warfare to wage on the uh, Israeli public and Israeli minds. But it seems to me like it is only this week, more than a month afterwards, that a real spotlight is being focused on this issue. Last night, you participated in a webinar sponsored by organizations at Harvard University called The Unspeakable Terror, Gender-Based Violence on October 7th. I understand that thousands tuned in. More will probably watch the webinar uh, recorded. And at the same time, there were thousands of women standing in Hostages Square in Tel Aviv in a rally for hostage release that was focused on the situation of women. You today are on your way to a briefing about the medical condition, the health concerns regarding women who are being held captive by Hamas. Can you tell me about all of these efforts and how it seems they're driven by a failure of international women's rights groups, among other human rights organizations, to recognize and condemn what has happened and what is happening to Israeli women? I think you described it very, very accurately. And I I want to go back to that uh, terrible uh, Shabbat on October 7th, uh, when none of us actually understood or could understand what was really going on. But I remember myself the following day thinking that very, very sadly based on my experience uh, in the UN, 
I, I knew that um, these uh, realities uh, would, would emerge, these stories would emerge. I had no doubt that sexual violence was very much part of what took place on October 7th. Obviously, I could not have known the extent and the, the scope and the, um, the extent of the cruelty, um, just like the name of the webinar last night, the unspeakable um, cruelty that uh, Hamas engaged in. But at the same time, I also knew that this would be an extremely difficult subject to tackle. What also became clear is that unlike any previous incidents of what is referred to in the UN language, conflict-related sexual violence, so unlike any previous uh, incidents um, of, of this, the Hamas terrorists, part of their cruelty and their um, desire to torture as much as possible, was that they actually had body cameras and they filmed their abhorrent actions in real time and they broadcasted it both to families of the victims and in social media. So already on Saturday and then Sunday, um, these horrific footage um, emerged on social media. They were actually deleted afterwards probably when Hamas realized that um, this is doing them, in fact, disservice instead of what they planned for. But um, we, and when I say we, is uh, women's organizations, academics, activists, we became aware very, very quickly that this would be an extremely um, difficult and uh, challenging um, subject to deal with. And at the same time, we also became aware that the authorities are completely lacking awareness as to the need to adapt to this unprecedented situation in Israel, whether it is in um, treating the forensic evidence from the murdered um, victims or whether it is... Um, preparing the protocols for treating the survivors or um, whether it is gathering all the digital evidence that uh, we now know that there are hundreds of thousands of digital files out there um, in social media, in the internet. So you need to categorize and to make a specific category of sexual violence. I also didn't mention the need to adapt their um, protocols of investigations of eyewitnesses or when they question the first respondents to have come to the scene, to the um, rescue teams. Um, they, they, they had to adapt all these protocols to be much, much more trauma-sensitive and gender-sensitive specifically to this type of crimes. Because it's not something that people want to talk about and that they want to face and that they want to focus on. It's not something that ever occurred in Israel, definitely not on such a scale. And just like in regular times, well, rape is rape. This is a very, very sensitive and delicate subject that people are reluctant to talk about. 
victims of sexual violence are always very reluctant to step up and and even seek help and obviously all the more so when it is done under such horrific circumstances of terrorist attack and on such a scale and extent of the cruelty and the violence that was part of the these attacks tell me about the failures of international human rights organizations of women's organizations to recognize and condemn what happened to israeli women one of the most devastating realities of these past weeks is that we have been completely betrayed by international human rights community and by world international women's rights organizations and i refer specifically to those entities within the un whose task is to protect women to protect women from violence to champion women's rights to acknowledge when harm is done to women these bodies on a daily basis deal with gender based violence and here when we israeli women were faced with the most horrible occurrence of conflict related sexual violence as the term is referred to in unish there was complete silence I remember on the Monday morning after October 7th Professor Francis Radai who was also at one point a member of the Committee on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women the CEDA committee of which I was also a member for 12 years we emailed the committee because that was the first day of their session and we told them what we went through on October 7th and we begged them to recognize that what happened was crimes against humanity war crimes perhaps even amounting to genocide what hamas did what hamas committed and we expected them to issue a statement accordingly it took them 3 weeks to finally issue a statement with no word at all not over hamas not on the atrocities committed by hamas and not even mentioning the ongoing crime of holding hostages un women similarly the very first statement immediately resorted to the conventional symmetry between the sufferings of women and children on both sides of the conflict and 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 i want this to be clear i'm not denying for a moment the suffering of women and children in gaza the suffering that hamas causes them using them as human shields and the suffering due to israel's retaliation in self protection but there is no way to uphold the conventional symmetry because october 7th stands out as something distinct as one of the most horrible crimes in modern day history people sometimes compare this to isis as far as we know in terms of the scale 
the extent, the level of, again, unspeakable cruelty, this was way, way beyond ISIS. Use the word betrayed. You, Ruth, have put in years of your life to working with the United Nations. Your work has often been pointed to as a bright spot in the relationship between Israel and the UN. You've been named as the chair of UN committees and subcommittees, as an Israeli woman and as a Zionist. But you've also been very exposed to the prejudices and the orientation that happens at the UN. So you sound surprised. Are you surprised? Are you deeply disappointed, shocked by the way the international human rights community in general, but specifically the United Nations and the United Nations bodies devoted to the welfare of women have responded or not responded to this? Yes, I am shocked and I am surprised. I didn't have much expectations from the political organs of the United Nations, which is the Security Council or the General Assembly or even UN Women. UN Women is part of the political bodies of the United Nations. But I should say that there too, the fact that they issued already at the second week of the war, a report on how the war affects women, and they only referred to women in Gaza, that was a, a blatant omission, inexcusable omission. But I did have expectations from the other UN bodies, those that are more professional, where independent experts are serving, the part of the UN when I was privileged to serve for 12 years. And even though I know the dynamics of these bodies, and I know that it's always very, very difficult to get to an agreed on text, and there's need to adopt things by consensus. So what you always get is the lowest common denominator. Even though I knew all that, I was shocked when the statements came out, whether it was CEDAW, whether it was CRC, the Committee on the Rights of the Child. Again, no reference to Hamas, no word about atrocities, no mention of sexual violence on women, which is, as I said before, the number one subject for which these bodies are functioning. That's their purpose. That's their role. And by being silent here, they're not only failing us, Israeli women, they're undermining the whole system. They lose credibility. And I'll say even more than that, by not referring to the ongoing crime of holding hostages they are in fact legitimizing it. You might even say that they're complicit in, in this situation of hostages being kept without a word about their whereabouts, without a word about their condition. And by doing that, they are also providing ammunition to all those who are already engaged in a denial campaign. And we are very well aware of what goes on now, not only in U.S. campuses, but within the whole um, 
community of the world left, there is inexplicable, incomprehensible denial of what actually went on on October 7th. I've, I've been thinking a lot these past weeks. I'm a second-generation Holocaust survivor. I could never understand how the Holocaust could be denied, how anybody could actually deny the Holocaust. And what we are witnessing now is a denial of something that happened just five weeks ago that was filmed in real time, that was broadcasted in real time. So seeing the results of the New York Times poll of last week that shows that a third of young Americans actually say that whatever Israel says about October 7th is fake, it's an invention, it's really beyond comprehension. It's and it's supposed to be one of the most documented atrocities in history because of the digital cameras, because of the GoPros, because of everything. So to have that amount of documented evidence next to denialism seems unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And again, I want to go back to the failure of these various human rights bodies by not acknowledging this, this, by refusing our appeals, our petitions, our letters, they are actually giving ammunition to these deniers. Well, to pivot to a slightly less devastating and depressing topic um, when it comes to the impact that not only October 7th, but the ongoing war is having on Israeli society. You run a gender studies program. You focus on all aspects of, uh, of the position of Israeli women um, in society. We've had amazing stories of bravery and heroism of women during this um, uh, security forces on kibbutzim being led by women who have really saved many lives on the kibbutzim. Um, there is one aspect of uh, young women soldiers often serve in a capacity called field observer. You can say the Hebrew equivalent the, better than the me. Tatspitaniot. Tatspitaniot. <laughs> um, and uh, they're placed in near borders, and basically their job is to stare at a screen and look at the borders, look at the border fences, and to anticipate um, uh, infiltrations and penetrations. And there have been reports in the Israeli media that many of these women on the Gaza border who later their base was infiltrated and many of them were uh, fell victim to the Hamas terrorists did see and did anticipate and did offer warnings ahead of time as to what was happening. And it has been suggested that it's perhaps gender bias that these were female soldiers, that their warnings were not taken seriously. What do you think of that? I am afraid I agree. I think that what we saw here is just a classical case of women doing their job the best possible way and and sending out warnings and early warnings one after the other and then being ignored by their mostly male commanders. I, I hate to think about it, but I do think that there is a gendered aspect to that, and it is just heartbreaking that 
these brave women who did their job and who guarded and were ignored, that they're the ones who suffered so much. So many of them were murdered and so many of them are now within the hostages taken by Hamas. When we hear these stories of bravery, when we look at what happened with the field observers, there are women inside Gaza, there are women almost in, in, in all kinds of positions. I've seen pundits pronouncing in the Israeli media that this will be the end of the gender wars within the Israel Defense Forces, the, the biases against women serving in key roles, in combat roles, that what they've done now has sort of ended the argument um, and ended the controversies, which have been very difficult for, for Israeli society. Do you agree? It's extremely, extremely unfortunate that we had to undergo such a horrible, horrible trauma. But I think that there's absolutely no question about it now. Um, everything that the opposition to women's service and to the various uh, roles of women's military service, um, every kind of argument had now been answered in the most horrible and, and saddest circumstances, including the fear of women falling hostage uh, to the enemy. And I, I think that it's really extremely important to mostly point out to the bravery, not just of the women soldiers or the women who were in charge of uh, security within the kibbutzim, but also of the mothers who protected their children, sometimes sacrificing themselves to protect the children or the mothers who had been taken hostage together with their children, with their babies. This is also bravery that should be championed. And it is, again, heartbreaking that these are the examples that, that, that are now forming our reality. But we need to acknowledge that too. Do you believe, do you have hope that with the mounting and the organizing of evidence with the kind of organizing efforts that you and some of your colleagues are behind, that eventually these international organizations, that the world, that the media will be able to recognize, acknowledge what has happened to Israeli women? I think they'll have no choice. I think what we are seeing now is the mounting interest by um, major Media channels, um, this podcast, I think, is part of this effort. And the growing evidence that is now being collected, testimonies that are emerging of eyewitnesses, perhaps maybe of survivors in the future, testimonies of first respondents, the digital evidence that is meticulously being collected now. I know that we will continue in our efforts to approach the various international organizations, the Secretary General's um, special representative on sexual violence in conflict times was officially invited by the government of Israel to come here and to investigate. I am in direct contact uh, with her and I do hope that she will come. The International Criminal Court, although Israel does not officially recognize its jurisdiction, is still a place where I believe justice should be done. 
And I, I really think that this first phase of complete silence and denial will change. It must change. I heard that a lot of the Harvard community asked last night, and in general, I know people are asking, so I'll close with this final question. What can people around the world, Jewish, not Jewish, who are concerned about the rights and the dignity of Israeli women, as much as they're concerned about the rights and dignity of Palestinian women in Gaza, what can they do? What can people do to help and contribute to this effort to uh, raise awareness and recognition of the crimes committed against uh, Israeli women on October 7th and beyond? There's a lot that can be done. First of all, let's talk about the hostages. It's, it's really heartwarming to see all the mass demonstrations and the flyers and the pictures that are being um, disseminated um, throughout the world an extremely important um, uh, arena for, for this war over public opinion is the social media. So I really encourage everybody to take part in this ongoing war. We know that on the other side, it's not just Hamas who is engaged in propaganda in a denial campaign. Hamas is being assisted by Iran, by China, by Russia. So we need all the help of people around the world to bring our side, to bring truth to, to power, to bring truth to social media. I urge everybody to write to their um, political leaders, write to your senators, to your Congress representatives. We must have more and more countries declare Hamas as a terrorist organization with all the legal ramifications on the international political scene. Those of you who are part of professional organizations and associations, fight for your associations to issue statements and position papers condemning Hamas. One can express concern for the suffering of innocent citizens in Gaza, but the insistence to condemn the atrocities, the crimes against humanity, and the genocide that Hamas engaged in on October 7th, that must be acknowledged. It must be recognized. So do whatever you can to have every group, every association that you belong to, to adhere to these statements. Professor Ruth Haltoman Kadari, thank you so much for coming on Haaretz Weekly. Thank you, Alison, for having me, and thank you for devoting the time to talk about this extremely, extremely difficult but important critical subject. Coming up next, Lily Ben Ami on personal weapons during wartime and domestic violence in Israel. I'm happy to welcome Lily Ben-Ami, founder of the Michal Sela Forum. Lily, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Alison. 
So just for a bit of background on you, Lily, you created your organization in memory of your sister, Michal, who was murdered by her husband in October of 2019, in the hopes, you said, of saving the lives of other women and preventing other tragedies. Your group's unique niche is to work to combat domestic violence through innovation and technological solutions and to build a new ecosystem of startups to prevent violence against women. The reason I asked you here is about a tweet you just posted in which you said it's true that personal weapons can save lives. However, it's important that we do everything we can to ensure that weapons do not end up in the wrong hands. Now, you wrote that just after National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir has been drastically expanding the speed and ease by which Israelis can obtain personal weapons following the traumatic events of October 7th. So... With your tweet, what exactly are you asking for and what are you concerned about? In Michal Sela Forum, we receive every day uh, calls from women, uh, domestic violence survivors and uh, their relatives, that they are very worried from the new policy uh, that today allows uh, much more people to have private weapon in their own home. Uh, we have some calls telling, uh, for example, um, my ex-husband, he uh, in the past, he threatened me with his uh, weapon and I went to the police and this is why I left home. It didn't end with uh, a charge, but uh, it was a few years ago and now he received a weapon uh, again and she's very worried. Uh, we... Uh, received many calls like this and we wrote to the Minister of National Defense and we asked the ministry to make sure that uh, the weapon won't arrive to the wrong hands. We wanted them to make sure that the people that receive these days uh, weapon, private weapon, uh, there will be a background check to make sure there is no um, domestic violence background. And after a long um, back and forth with the ministry, we found that in the um, list of criteria, the new criteria, there is nothing that has to do with domestic violence or even criminal record. We checked it uh, with the information that they published to the public, and there is nothing that has to do with criminal record. So we asked the police and the ministry, please publish to the public we should, as civilians, feel safe in our own home. Please publish to the public the criteria that refer to criminal record and domestic violence past. There's no criteria at all, even for a past criminal record, uh, for this new criteria to, uh, to receive a gun? The Minister of Interior Defense, he told us there is in the letter we received. He said, if you have a background criminal record, uh, the person won't receive a gun. But if you look at the criteria that they, they publish, uh, there is nothing about it. And um, there is a police officer has to approve receiving a weapon. But there is no place they, uh, they publish what the police officer is checking. What is the list of the thing they check? So we asked the ministry, Please, um, let's see those criteria and uh, let's uh, make sure that the police officers all over Israel, that they know for sure that they need to check the domestic violence background. Let's also 
Maybe the ministry should write to all the officers, you know, to remind them exactly what they should check. By the way, not only the police officers. If you want a gun, you should also bring um, an approval from a doctor. So also the doctors also should uh, get um, very specific guidance from the ministry. And the ministry should publish it to the public because there are so many uh, victims that they're afraid. It's like uh, fear for your life, for your children's life. Uh, today, we checked it over and over, and we are in touch with all the authorities. Uh, this information is not published. Also, another problem is that the police and the ministry are not checking the data of the welfare authorities. Today, domestic violence is mainly dealt with the welfare centers. In Israel, there is 170 um, welfare centers for domestic violence. They take care of 10,000 victims a year. And those centers, they have so much critical information uh, the police and those centers, uh, the welfare ministry, they don't talk to each other. They don't cross information. And how do domestic violence organizations like yours meet this situation? Your groups have always lobbied to have extremely tight requirements for permits to keep guns in a private home. And now there's this national reckoning with the fact that, for example, in the kibbutzim on the Gaza border, many people died because the security team were not allowed to keep the guns in their homes and they weren't able to reach the central location where the guns were stored. And in general, there's a worry and anxiety for people's safety, which is making them interested in arming themselves. How do you balance between people's genuine worry about their own personal security and your knowledge that more guns in homes means more potential domestic violence murders? In Michal Sela Forum, um, we, don't, we are not against weapon in general. Uh, in Michal Sela Forum right now, we are giving private security companies for 222 threatened women in their own home. We are giving them uh, a private security camera and a panic button and a patrol of a security guard 24-7. We have uh, nine women that we gave them a protection canine that is trained to protect them for life. He's living with them. Um, we work with the best security officers and experts in Israel, and we develop uh, innovative and new solutions uh, to protect women, also um, in, in every mean that you know we should use everything we can to protect ourselves and predict violence. We, all we ask from the government is make us uh, feel safe in our own home. Publish to the public what ways uh, you use to make sure that dangerous people that have a um, criminal record or that uh, the, the police know or the welfare know that those people are threatening another person. By the way, it can be your neighbor. Maybe maybe your neighbor threatened you. So you want to make sure that those person, that, they, that uh, it can be like a ticking bomb to give them a weapon. So we, uh, this is what we ask from the ministry. P please publish to everyone uh, how you enforce it, how you make sure that the weapon won't reach the wrong hand. We understand 
Um, the fear that people feel after October 7, you know, we are part of it. We live here and uh, we are heartbroken from what happened. And we are also very afraid, you know, from uh, the war right now. And we understand the need, the basic need to protect ourselves. Lily, how is this war situation after more than a month meeting the domestic violence situation in Israel? Is it making things better or worse and is there a reluctance for victims to speak up about their domestic violence situations because it's wartime? We call it t- today the quiet wave. The war, uh, everybody is much more stressful, um, more worried. And in houses where there is violence, uh, the violence is worse than before because of the war, because of the stress. Also because people are inside their homes. Uh, We can see that in times like holidays or like COVID-19, when people are inside their homes more or when there are changes like giving a a, a birth of a new baby or moving to a new house, you can see a race of domestic violence and murders of women in their own home. Uh, So the war now, there is definitely a race, but it's the quiet white wave because um, there are much less victims that speak up. Those victims are, uh, you know, they, they are first of all afraid like everyone else because of the war for their children, for themselves. And they think maybe my problem is not the thing that should be in the top of the priority of the government, or they're afraid because their uh, threatening party is with them in, uh, inside their house. We saw the same thing in COVID-19 when there was a shutdown. So there was a quiet wave. There was a lot of uh, domestic violence, but the, the, there was a drop down calling the, um, uh, the hotlines. And like COVID-19, also now we are predicting that after the war is over and people go back to their daily life, then there will be the second wave, which will be much lethal. There will be more um, lethal victims of domestic violence because, as experts say, um, the attacker he needs to control his victim. Where is she going? What is she? What is she doing? And uh, when she's at home, he's in more control. But when she's will go back to work as normal and go to her parents, to her friends as normal, then he's in less control and the violence uh, grow bigger. Lily Benami, founder of the Michal Sela Forum, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And that wraps things up for this episode of Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guests, Ruth Halperin-Kadari and Lily Benami, to my producer, Dan Brumer, and editor, Nahara Malkin. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv.